Well, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of James. We are about halfway through our study in this wonderful letter in the New Testament. And if you remember last week, Pastor Michael said that over half the book of James is commands. James gives us lots of clear teaching on how we are to be living our lives, what we are supposed to be putting our efforts towards. And if you were to summarize the book of James in maybe a short sentence or a phrase, it would be something like this, be a doer of God's Word and not just a hearer. Be a doer of God's Word and not just a hearer. Here are some of the, the commands that we've heard so far in the book of James. You'll remember these. From James chapter 1, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. From James chapter 2, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we heard last week from James chapter 3, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers and sisters, these ought not to be so. These commands that James gives us are not optional for the Christian. They are essential to healthy Christian living. It's like this. It's like James lays out all these parts on the table, and he's asking the readers, he's asking us, do you have this piece of the Christian life? Do you have that piece? Are you living this command? Are you living that command? Because you need them all, because without them, you can't build a mature and complete Christian life. But as you know, it isn't enough to have all the right pieces. You need to know how all the pieces fit together, as with any work or home project. Uh, I remember the first time that I was building a crib for my first daughter, and we thought that by buying the furniture from Ikea, it was going to be smooth sailing. Let me tell you, it really wasn't. Even though all you need is an Allen wrench, at one point I threw it down and I said to my wife, you know, the baby could sleep in a laundry basket with a blanket. It's much more portable. I, didn't, I, I slept on the couch that night. That wasn't a good response. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You see, knowing God's instructions for living and applying them to life really isn't as easy as one, two, three. How can you count it all joy when you face various trials, when you're a single parent with no margin in your life? How can you be quick to listen or slow to speak or slow to become angry when your office environment doesn't give you much room for your views? How can you still honor the image of God in another person with your words when they make fun of you at school? You see, all these commands require that we need wisdom. We need wisdom. And that's the focus of our passage this morning. Now, James is Jewish, and so his understanding of what wisdom is comes from the Hebrew Bible, especially from books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And I want you to listen to these words from Proverbs 4 that really describe what wisdom is according to the Bible. This is a father speaking to his son, and here's what he says. He says, my son, be attentive to my words. 
Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. In other words, we learn that biblical wisdom is knowing how to apply God's commands to every aspect of living. It's to make life choices aware that we are always in God's presence, whether we are in private or we're in public. It's a mindset that says, how I order my life, how I spend my money, how I am in my relationships, the quality of work that I do, all of that matters to God. And the Bible describes this kind of living as the fear of the Lord. Now, there's another key part to biblical wisdom, and it's this. And we heard this earlier in the Old Testament reading. You see, since wisdom was used by God to create the world, God knows how the world works so we can trust Him for His instructions. Following His instructions will lead to a well-ordered and healthy life. We may not realize this, but when we say that we believe that God is the creator of all that is seen and unseen, what we are also saying is God knows best. Think about it this way. Who knows your car better than the manufacturer? Who knows how to troubleshoot your software better than the company who made it? And the same principle applies to God. He's the creator of all life. And he has given us wisdom on how to live. He has not left us in the dark. And where we discover that wisdom is namely in two places. In the created world and understanding how the world works. But chiefly and especially and most importantly, did I say enough there? The very word of God. Now, not, now, God not only gives us clear commands, he also gives us wisdom on how we are to put these commands together in our lives. And that's the picture of biblical wisdom that James is working with and presents here. But what we're going to see this morning is that this God-centered view of wisdom doesn't fit very well with other views of wisdom that we encounter in our culture regularly. So James, in typical wisdom literature fashion, lays out two kinds of wisdom in our passage. The first is the wisdom from below and its corruption, from, and that's what we see in verses 14 to 17. And then the second is the wisdom from above and its consequences, and that's what we see in verses 17 and 18. That's the outline for this morning. But before we get there, James throws out something for our consideration. You see it there in verse 13. He throws out a question. He asks this, Who is wise in understanding among you? If you were to funnel the collective wisdom found on social media, Netflix shows, movies, community events, here is some of what I think you would hear in response to James's question. A wise person is someone who is above all true to themselves. They reject or at the very least are suspicious of authority figures, whether it's the government, religious authorities, or even parental authority. Since the world is unstable, the only person you could rely on 
is yourself. And if you really want to discover who you really are, don't just know your feelings, but trust them. And no matter what, go after your dreams because the wise person doesn't let anyone or anything get in the way of their individual pursuits. Now, in each of these statements, uh, there may be a kernel of truth in them here and there, but these are by no means words to live by at all. They aren't gospel truth. But the truth of the matter is, we may be tempted to think that's what our culture thinks or that's what those in society think. That's not what we think. But the truth is that these words actually ring very true with our own sinful nature. They please our own selves. And that sinful nature that we have, we have in common with all people. You see, even as Christians, getting our own way, doing whatever we feel like it, really does feel like gospel truth sometimes, doesn't it? It just feels so right. But notice how James answers this question in the second part of the verse. He says, the wise person is the one who shows good conduct in the meekness of wisdom. That's quite a contrast, isn't it? You see, wise living isn't primarily about us, it's about others. It's about how we use who we are and what we have to add to the beauty and goodness of other people. Because that's what God's Word would have us do. In all their relationships, in all their circumstances, the best circumstances, the worst circumstances, the wise person asks, what opportunities are there for me to do good in this relationship, in this work project? What is the good God is calling me to do right here and right now? And how do we know that what we've done is truly in the spirit of Christian wisdom. What gives us knowledge of that? Here's how. This is what James tells us. That it is done with meekness. That it is done with weakness. You know, if you have a kind of a collector's item or an antique, Many times you look for some authenticating mark or number to let you know that it's real. And that mark for Christians is meekness, or to put it another way, gentleness. You see, Christian wisdom isn't just good, in, uh, just interested in positive outcomes or good outcomes. It is also gentle in nature. Here's what I mean. When a doctor takes great care not to cause more pain as she repairs the broken bone, that's gentle wisdom. When the student protests the homework and pushes it away in anger, the teacher doesn't become resentful and instead he patiently helps the student finish the assignment, that's gentle wisdom. Biblical wisdom isn't just concerned about productivity or metrics. Biblical wisdom takes into account how we affect other people. It isn't just about the final product. It's more than just checking boxes. It's about connecting to the deeper needs of people. That's how you know this is biblical wisdom. 
Now, before James tells us about this wisdom that is from above, he wants to tell us about the wisdom that is from below, that is from the world, and what that actually produces. You know, products that are defective or products that are made with lesser materials have real-life consequences. You think about the lawsuits uh, against uh, tire companies because they did not manufacture their, their tires right and, and caused many accidents. That has real-life consequences. It may look like the real thing. It may even feel like the real thing. But wisdom from below sure doesn't last, and it does cause a lot of harm. And that's what James wants us to see here. In verse 14, James teaches us that wisdom that is primarily about self-fulfillment and self-expression leads to what? Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. James just told us that biblical wisdom works hard so that others might experience good. But this wisdom that is from below is envious at what other people have. It isn't about their good. What's it about? It's about our gain. And you know, envy, jealousy, can grow as quickly and as subtly in our hearts like weeds on the lawn. They can go totally undetected until it takes over. And that's the same thing that is true about jealousy. Think about how jealousy clouds our ability to make good judgments in life. It can make us spend more money than we have to try to keep up with others. It could lead us to pursue recognition professionally at the expense of our personal relationships. It can wreak havoc in church life. Someone else gets asked to lead. Someone else gets the phone call or visit someone else. Someone else's idea is championed by the group. It can brew and it can fester. You know, years ago, a mentor of mine uh, asked uh, us, uh, who was a group of students, they said, what would you want most for your counselees? What do you most want to see for them? And in one form or another, we all answered, well, we would want them all to get better, to improve, to heal. And then he asked, even if that meant you weren't the best person to help them, even if that meant you had to step aside. And there was silence. It was a great question. Because do we really want what is best for others, even if it means we're not in the spotlight anymore? Do we really want what is best for the family, for the church, for the company, even if it means someone else gets to be recognized? Or are we only interested in helping or being a part of the solution as long as it benefits us? You see, wisdom that is based on jealousy and selfish ambition says, I'm out. And the reason that we have to see this like this is that jealousy and selfish ambition are actually identical twins. They come from, they share the same genetic code. 
And that's because they share the same source. James tells us in verse 15 that this wisdom from below is earthly, unspiritual, it's demonic. James is saying this wisdom, it doesn't originate with God, even if it has a Christian label on it. If it is born out of jealousy and selfish ambition, then you know it's demonic and not divine. But you know, sometimes it isn't always easy to discern what is really divine and what is demonic. So how can you tell? You have to look at what our decisions produce. If what results is disorder and vile practice, James says that's counterfeit wisdom, that's not divine wisdom. So think about the choices that you make during the day. Do your choices lead to conflicts around the dinner table with loved ones? Do your decisions lead to give the silent treatment or to attack others with your words? Where your choices at work leave things in worse shape when you leave, for when you leave? Do your decisions make you want to stay away from the church or other Christians or ignore prayer and Bible study? These are telltale signs that this decision-making is grounded in wisdom from below. Now, I want to be clear Typically, when we are more prone to temptation, things don't go as well for us spiritually. We're not as spiritually glowing. And let's not forget that the Christian life remains a lifelong project for all of us. So what are we supposed to do when we get off course? James gives us some hints of this in verse 14 as to what we're supposed to do on how we are to make a repair. He says, do not, be, do not boast or be false to the truth. When someone brings to your attention, you've acted selfishly. You shouldn't have done that. People were hurt by what you did. These were the outcomes of what you did. Or we have a moment of awareness and we say, I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? That is the opportunity not to dig in our heels, not to insist on we were right, but rather to admit that we were wrong. Because, you see, if we were to insist that we were right, essentially what we are doing, we are bragging. We're boasting in our foolishness, and we're living a lie. And James says, don't do that. Admit that you're wrong. You see, to admit that we are wrong as Christians costs us our pride. But you know what it doesn't cost us? that it will never cost us our position in Jesus Christ. It won't ever move us out of the family of God. It will cost us our pride, but nothing more. And in fact, when we admit that we are wrong, it actually opens up deeper intimacy with God and closer friendship with other people. Just because we acted foolishly yesterday doesn't mean we have to act foolishly today. The Bible is clear. It is never too early to repent, but sometimes it can be too late. So we get to admit in the moment we've made a mistake. Now, in verses 17 and 18, James shows us the wisdom that is from above. 
And he shows us what good that produces. He says, this wisdom from above has many characteristics that we need to, uh, that we need to employ in our living. But I want to say also that when James says this phrase, wisdom from above, he doesn't mean wisdom from another planet. He's not saying that this is some weird alien wisdom or some pious religious jargon disconnected from the realities of life. By wisdom from above, he means it's top-shelf stuff. It's the best of the best. It's the wisdom that is sent by God himself. Listen to how he describes it in verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And rather than talk to you and describe these seven characteristics of what this wisdom from above looks like, I want to do what James says earlier in our text, which is show you. I want to show you two examples that embody this wisdom from above. And the first example comes from a place you would never expect to find traces of divine wisdom, the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service. Well, actually, it's not our IRS here. That's no surprise. It's the IRS equivalent in Uganda, the Ugandan Revenue Authority. You see, back in, uh, before 2004, the Ugandan Revenue Authority, the URA, was neck and neck with the Ugandan police as the most mistrusted government institution in society. Uh, They take a poll each year, which is the least trusted, most corrupt, uh, most dangerous government institution, and every year the Ugandan Revenue Authority was neck and neck with the police department. And it was. It was very corrupt and inefficient. The tax clause were very hard to understand, and many people were imprisoned for not paying their taxes, not even knowing they had to pay certain taxes. The taxes people paid, they didn't see any outworkings of what they were doing in society. Uh, hospitals were underfunded. Schools were, underfund, or were underfunded. And back in 2004, Catherine Allen took the job as the head of the authority. And she was the first woman to do that. And many people tried to dissuade her from doing this job because everyone else who had this job failed miserably. But when she took on this position she made a promise to make the organization morally pure. That is, to free it from corruption. No mixed motives, no underhanded tactics anymore. In the first year, she made all 2,000 people reapply for their jobs. She got rid of the whole agency due to its corruptions, and she said, if you want to work for us, you can apply for your job again. That led to the trimming of 500 positions, and she only hired back the most motivated and honest workers. She then, in a peaceable and gentle spirit, surveyed the Ugandan people and asked them how they would want the tax authority to serve them. She listened to them. The people said, the tax laws, they're hard to understand. We have to wait long li- in long lines each month to make payments, and we don't see where our money is going. Catherine was open to reason. She listened. 
And she came up with a system that clearly laid out to each taxpayer their rights and obligations. No one was granted special treatment. She was impartial. And the tax collectors didn't ask for kickbacks under her watch. She then set up an online system of payment to make things easier for the people. She also was compassionate and merciful in her mindset. She and her fellow tax collectors personally brought school supplies and hospital supplies with the money that was raised by taxes. And after 10 years, the good fruits of her labor increased the tax revenue by 317%, which opened more hospitals, schools, and built infrastructure. What a harvest that produced. When you ask Catherine Allen, why were you able to do this? How were you able to do this? She says this, I was naive enough to believe that when you ask God to enter into an environment, that he knows how to change it. It was God's idea, it was God's wisdom that we should use our agency to serve the people of Uganda, not to be served, uh, not to be served by them. Now notice, wisdom that is based on self-fulfillment and self-satisfaction cannot create these kinds of results because that's not the focus. Wisdom rooted in selfishness isn't ultimately concerned about service to others. Now, some of you this morning are saying, you know, this all sounds good. That's Uganda. That's very far away. What I need is I need wisdom in my life situation like that. Well, one of the things that James wants to make clear to us from the very opening verses of his book is that each of us have access to divine wisdom because God is generous in giving it. The passage in Proverbs 8 actually teaches that the very wisdom that created the world is ours already. And it's better than an abstract principle. It's better than even a clear set of instructions. Ultimately, the wisdom of God is a person that we can befriend and know. Paul says this about Jesus. He is our wisdom, and in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. Look at how Jesus embodies the characteristics that James talks about here. Because Jesus is morally pure and generously loving, he came down from heaven, and by his teaching and miracles, he brought peace. He lived a life that was gentle. He was open to the needs of the people. He did not push them away. He served them and he healed them. He was merciful to all and he was impartial. He loved tax collectors. He welcomed Gentiles. And by his death and resurrection, he overturned the folly of sin that makes us go down dark paths. And now Jesus Christ, because he is raised, shares that light of life with each one of us. You see, the wisdom that God used to create create the world is also the very wisdom that has redeemed us. The very wisdom that God delighted in before the start of creation is ours in Jesus Christ. And that light still guides us each and every day. 
And what that means is that if you go to Jesus to illuminate your path, you may not always know what to do in every situation, but His light will put you in the right direction. You can make wise decisions even in the midst of many unknowns. We don't know what puzzles life will bring us or when we will be forced to make a hard decision. We may not know exactly what to do, but if we stick close to Christ, we're never that far from the answer because all wisdom and understanding is found in Him. And whatever dilemma you may face this week, God has given you the mind of Christ to give you discernment to respond in a way that pleases God and brings peace to others. By God's grace, you really can embody the characteristics of wisdom that James lays out here in whatever your circumstances are. What Christ wants to do is share his mindset with you. He wants you to bring his mindset to the workplace to your attitude in your studies, as you spend time with family members. He wants you to enjoy living by his wisdom in every area of your life. Friends, living wisely isn't about self-fulfillment. And it isn't about having all the answers or knowing how everything in life will fit together necessarily It's about letting the light of Christ as revealed in Scripture to direct your steps. And may God give us the grace to open our hearts and our minds to the light of Christ each day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for not leaving us in the dark. But in your great mercy and love, you have revealed to us your wisdom in Jesus. Lord, so many people here, so many of us are facing circumstances in which we do not know what to do. Would you great, give us a greater measure of your Holy Spirit? Give us greater insight so that however we respond, you may be glorified. Lord, I pray that in this coming week, people would experience breakthroughs in their hardships, that previously not knowing how to act, they would know now, and that all of us would grow in trusting in your leading in our lives, so that we could be made more and more into the image of Christ, and be the kind of people that bring goodness to all. In your name we pray, amen.